Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Here's a question, and my guess is most of us will struggle to come up with an answer to it. I actually think there'll be no end to our answer. The question is, what is enough? Money, housing, food, clothing. At what point would you say you have enough? It's a question my next two guests have thought deeply about, and they do have some answers that are bound to challenge many of us. They're a really interesting couple. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Keysmat have been married for 19 years. They have two daughters. They live on an off-the-grid organic farm near Toronto in Canada. In their life and ministry, they've achieved a rare balance between solid biblical and theological studies that they both teach with a lifestyle that seeks to put many of those theoretical insights into practice, often radically, so we might think. It's a lifestyle that would challenge many. They've been in Australia with the TIER Australia Conference, where they've been speaking about what is enough and how to live life as God's people in what they call a captivated world. Brian and Sylvia, welcome to Open House. Thank you. Thank you. Very much look forward to our discussion. Can I begin by asking you each about your journey in the Christian faith that's brought you to the lifestyle that you've chosen and the insights you've had about the kind of life the Bible might demand of us? My faith has its beginning when I was 16 years old, actually. I was converted in an inner-city mission in downtown Toronto, not not unlike the Wesley Mission. And for me, that early conversion in the midst of the inner city of Toronto uh, communicated to me that the Jesus that I had committed my life to was a Jesus fundamentally committed to the poor. And uh, so, so my my life and my discipleship has always been drawn to to that kind of an image of Jesus, a very earthly Jesus, uh, a Jesus that called for a radical redirection of my life. My my life at that point was uh, pretty directionless, and if I had any direction, I, I really wanted to be a salesman for a multinational corporation. <laughs> I think You've chosen that, a different path. I think Jesus saved me from that. <laughs> yes. Sylvia, what about you? I grew up in uh, in the Dutch Reformed tradition in Canada, uh, Calvinist tradition, and um, through my uh, so unlike Brian who was converted, I, I grew up a Christian. In fact, I think I became a biblical scholar because I spent so much time in church reading the Bible to uh, save myself from boredom, <laughs> in other ways. Um, and and that tradition was one which really uh, emphasized the sort of the all-encompassing character of Christianity, how how Jesus was talking about not just our souls, but all of our life, our economic life, our political life, uh, creational life. And I came from a family that was very, very um, concerned, not concerned, just had a loving care for being outside in the wild and looking at what God had made. So all of those things kind of came together when I when I started thinking about the Bible. I imagine for both of you, sometimes that's not the most comfortable life you could have chosen. Oh, that's true. <laughs> A different life would have been much easier, that's for sure. Yeah, Brian? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually wouldn't put it that way. I, I found uh, the, uh, the, the life of, of consumerist uh, insatiability uh, to be a life of profound boredom. 
And uh, to abandon that kind of a life for an alternative, uh, a more radical sense of discipleship, uh, no, it's not comfortable, uh, but it's so much more deeply fulfilling. What has replaced the boredom, do you think? Uh, I, I would say what, what replaces the boredom is, is passion, a passion uh, for this, this good creation and its, and its restoration, a passion uh, for justice, a passion for a sense of wholeness in our own lives and, 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 and in our own relationships. Uh, and it seems to me that insatiability, that sense of, of never having enough, um, it, it, it creates a certain kind of a passion, that longing, that longing for more. Uh, but, but when it comes right down to it, that, that, that longing really produces a numbness. You just become numb. You, you really have no sense of, of being meaningfully alive. You both speak and write about living and thinking Christianly in our world. For both the Christian and the spectator to the Christian faith, what do you mean by that? When I think about how sometimes we in the past and and other people too have engaged with the world as a, a world where you consume things, we think more in terms of the world as something that we're called to engage with. And so thinking Christianly, for me anyway, means that in sort of every part of my life, I'm thinking about what, what what's God's vision for wholeness? What's God's vision for shalom? Um, how can this particular broken or hurting part of creation be, can, how, can I, how can we engage with that part of creation in a way that some kind of healing can come? Whether that's, you know, where your clothes are made and, you know, who, who, is, who is hurting or being exploited in order for these clothes to be made? What can be a, a redemptive alternative to that happening? And same with our housing, our food, all of that. So, I mean, there's, for us, a lot of it has to do with thinking beyond to what, what could this really be rather than what it is. Another way to, to put that would be that to, to, to try to think and live Christianly would be to be animated by a biblical imagination. Hmm. The question would be, uh, whose story do you want your life to tell? And what story uh, will animate and shape your life and shape your imagination? And the dominant Western culture has a story. It has a mythology, a very powerful mythology. And, and what's so interesting about this mythology is that you, you don't get converted to it. You were born into it. Uh, and as a convert, I know, I know what it means to have repentance, have metanoia, have a radical change in my life. And it seems to me that the biblical imagination calls for such a change. So, so the question then becomes, you know, what is the story that I want my life to tell? What do you think characterizes the world's mythology? Um, How would you describe that? I, I think what, what characterizes the world's mythology is that, that, that great Western story of progress, uh, that story that that identifies progress with scientific knowledge and technological power, and most most quintessentially with economic growth, seems to me that the ideology of economic growth has captivated the imaginations of the Western world, and by extension, especially through globalization, the rest of the world as well, and sadly, tragically 
has captivated the imaginations of the vast majority of the world's Christian population. And I think that story also has at its core an identification of power and success um, that, that is intimately tied up uh, with a certain kind of violent control. So those who, those who are able to assert themselves most powerfully and often most violently are considered to be the ones who are the winners in, in our cultural story. And they are the economic winners and, um, and, and the winners in, in other ways as well. There'd be people who'd say, what's wrong with progress and growth? Um, nothing's wrong with, with, with progress and growth if we understand progress and growth uh, appropriately. If what we're talking about is, is a growth of justice and progress towards a sustainable way, way of life, then I'll, I'm all in favor of progress and growth. But what the ideology of, dare we call it, global capitalism uh, really proclaims is the growth of the economy at, all, at the expense of all other things. And that, in, in biblical terms, is called idolatry. When you take something good, the economic transaction is a good thing. We can't be here in Australia without certain kinds of economic transactions, and, and that, that, that's all a good thing. But when economic transaction and the growth of the economy is taken to be of ultimate value, that it, it overrides all other values, then you have something that is called idolatry. And idolatry in the scriptures will always require sacrifice, require sacrifice of resources, sacrifice of people, and most importantly, the sacrifice of children. Why do you think it's become so dominant, the economic argument and the economy? The politicians talk about nothing else. Why can't they, do you think, or why won't they? I think they can't because they don't have an imagination beyond it. They're captivated. Read, read Hosea. And, and, and you read Hosea and what Hosea has to say about idolatry. It's clear that, that you get captured by idolatry. It holds you captive and you can't begin to see beyond beyond its purview. Uh, why that has happened in the West, well, might have something to do with uh, the nature of colonialism, the, the nature of political power, uh, and the nature of economic power. And really, economic power is much more important in our world than even political power. Yeah. Political power bows the knee to economic forces. Even in the biblical story, I mean, the temptation, I mean, the gods, the gods of Canaan, Baal, or, or the gods of Egypt, were, were all bound up in this narrative of fertility and abundance, which is an economic narrative, right? Yeah. Baal was the fertility god. And against that narrative of fertility, that economic narrative, was always this biblical narrative of enough, right? And enough, uh, a trust in God that will provide enough. And it's not up to us to try to, to grasp everything that we can possibly have. And so in some ways, our culture is no different than these, than these ancient cultures, which were always worried about whether there would be enough, but their anxiety, their lack of trust always led to a certain kind of grasping. Our culture is no different yes. than those ancient cultures. On Open House, we're with Brian Walsh and Sylvia Keesmatz. They're from Canada, uh, living this radical off-the-grid organic lifestyle and they're here for the Tier Australia conference. So my question is, how do you arrest that back? 
I, I understand your critique mm -hmm. and can absolutely see the logic in it, but how do you possibly turn it around? One of the ways the Bible talks about um, growth is always tied in with the, me the, the metaphor of bearing fruit. In the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament, Jesus talks about um, those who are in him bear good fruit. And that good fruit throughout Old Testament and New Testament is always the fruit of justice and righteousness. And it seems to me that in a culture that's talking about growth, we need to, to redirect the story as to what is this growth for? Um, what does this fruit look like? Because the sense of bearing fruit is some, I think it's a metaphor that's very rich in both inside and outside of the Christian community. And um, the biblical story talks about that fruit that, that will come uh, when Jesus comes back on the new earth as the fruit of healing, healing for the nations. And so part of how we rest uh, that back, the, the narrative back, is by telling a narrative that itself is compelling and that has hope for people's brokenness and the places where people are facing deep darkness. And so that's that's a start, is telling that, that story. And then another way is communities that show what, what that narrative looks like when it's embodied, what it looks like in our cities for there to be places of hospitality and welcome, what it looks like in a world of oppressive food choices to have options that are not only healthy, but options that provide hope in terms of communities growing their own food, in terms of food security. I understand your question that, that you're asking, well, how, how do we do this? Yes. We can't even begin to imagine doing this without rereading the scriptures. Mm. Enough disconnected scripture, enough reading of scripture as if it's, it's only about my personal spiritual life and, 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 and me and my walk with Jesus, as if the scriptures aren't about radically transforming absolutely everything and offering a totally uh, uh, different understanding of what the good life is. So if, if, if we can begin to read scripture anew, and that begins to transform us. Then new questions arise. New questions. Questions of who made the shirt on my back? Who made this shirt? What was she, because it was probably she, yes. what was she paid for this? What was the environmental cost of making this shirt and of transporting this shirt to, 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 to the store where, where I bought it? Those types of questions become essential. Questions of how do we transport ourselves uh, within our cities? How do, how do we deal with our sewage? You know, it has to come right down to, to that type of nitty-gritty stuff. What, what, how do we do, deal with our sewage? And, and, and are there more appropriate, more sustainable, more godly ways to deal with human excrement? Can we ask that question? It's a good question. <laughs> and what's your answer? That's the thing. You live in a major metropolis like any of the capital cities of Australia into which we broadcast. Yes. What do I do about that? Well, I, let's take sewage. I don't know what the issues are in, in the cities of, of Australia. Uh, but there are, are, are better and worse ways to deal with, with hu human waste. And we've got to find the better ways. And sometimes those better ways will be the economically more expensive ways. Yes. And we have to, to take those more expensive ways.
So mm-hmm. sometimes um, to live a life of enough will require spending more money on better things and fewer things. And sometimes those will require political decisions and communal decisions. And, and I think those are the kind of decisions that the church needs to be at the forefront of. Brian says this gives rise to new questions, and it might not be immediately clear how the biblical story gives rise to those questions, except that this is a story about shalom, and it's a story about a certain kind of right relationship on the earth and with each other. And as soon as you're concerned with stories, and and shalom is the biblical word for peace, for right relationship, and as soon as you're concerned about right relationship, then you then you begin to ask those kinds of questions. That's that's why they arise, because that story is concerned about a, a certain redemptive and healing end. And there are two elements to that that you particularly highlight: compassion and forgiveness. Compassion uh, is 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 at the very heart of God. You know, I mean, the the God God our God is a God full of steadfast love and compassion, and Compassion is what happens when love meets brokenness, because compassion is compassio, that is to share the passio, to share the passion, to share the pain. And our God is a God who shares pain. And so I think also that Christian discipleship and Christian uh, uh, daily living wants to always be asking that question as well. Where is the pain? And how do my actions and our actions together as a society either create more pain and more injustice or help to alleviate pain and bring about restoration? And it involves forgiveness. So Yeah, Yeah, I mean, if compassion is where love meets brokenness, I think forgiveness is where love meets betrayal. And it's clear uh, very early on in the biblical story, God makes this this covenant and this commitment with, with all living things on the earth after the flood. And it becomes clear that, that human beings particularly are going to consistently betray God, um, consistently not live up to that covenant. And God's response um, over and over again is forgiveness. Um, there are times when God wants to punish and Moses says, Oh, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. What are the neighbors going to think? I mean, really, you know, why did you leave these people out? Um, and God says, okay, you're right. You're right. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll forgive them. And forgiveness comes at a cost, right? That forgiveness is God's willingness to bear the pain of betrayal and hang in there. And that's what Jesus does on the cross, right? Jesus says, I'm going to bear the pain of your betrayal and make it possible for love to triumph. And that's what we are called to do again and again and again, because betrayal happens again and again and again. And there's only one way through, and that's to bear it and forgive it. Can I ask you finally, if there are those listening to you tonight who think, this is a way that I can change my life. How do they launch into it? They might fear it's just too big, as with the sewage question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but how can they dip their toe into a new, perhaps more radical life of living Christianly, the subversive religion well, of fir- which you speak? First and foremost, the, uh, not alone. This, this isn't a matter of, of one person uh, or, or even one family. 
trying to figure out better ways to live uh, because the odds are so much stacked against us. No, this is something that happens in community. And so uh, I think we begin by gathering together into community in vulnerability and in honesty and asking ourselves, how are we living? And are, are, are we happy with the way in which we're living? Is, is the way in which we're living reflective of our deepest faith in Jesus Christ? And then begin to find ways together. It could be, be um, we're going to break down the, the atomization of, of the nuclear family. The nuclear family, what an interesting uh, phrase. Uh, it's bound to explode, isn't it? Um, we're going to break down that and, and reach out to the community. And our, our house is going to be where the block parties are happening and all the barbecues are happening and where homemaking is happening. It's another very important theme to us is the making of home. So I think that even on those kinds of levels and, and, and in, in those parties... Uh, we're going to be very concerned about what what's the food that we are serving and, and where did it come from? Uh, might we know the farmer who produced the food? Uh, might we be able to invite that farmer? You know, trying to bring things together in that way on the community level. And I think the, the other important point here is it's a party, folks. It's a party. This isn't a heavy trip. Yeah. This is a party. This is an invitation to the kingdom. Because it might sound a bit grim, all this alternative lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Well, and for us, it began with um, we, we, uh, we knocked out a wall in our house in, when we lived in Toronto still. So that, um, so that we could practice hospitality better. So that our living room and kitchen were one big room. And that was the first step. Make a space for people to come together. It's pretty That's practical. what we wanted to do. It was very That's... down to earth. And the other thing we did was we joined a food co-op. And, um, and in the food co-op, which was actually a retail store called Karma Co-op, which you can started in the 70s, <laughs> a bunch of hippies. And, um, and, you know, that became a place where we met other people and just began to think through issues of food, which led to thinking through issues of clothes, which led, you know, we started very small. Yes. And gradually things, things grew and, um, and we found community. That was important. I'm sure you've inspired more than a few people to think differently and hopefully Christianly. Thank you so much indeed for joining us, Brian and Sylvia. It's been a privilege. Thank you. We've enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.